I want to thank our sponsor, Aviate Watchers, who create timepieces to seek the honour of both the aircraft and the untold story of the airmen who have dedicated themselves both in and out of the cockpit to bring these incredible machines to life. They give the customer a deeper look into the shape and form of an aircraft and tell some of the incredible stories behind aviation to help draw out the brand. The vision is to produce watches that are functional yet enjoyable to wear, which also tell a story of both man and machine. Make sure you head to their website at aviate.com to check out all their amazing timepieces. Thank you and enjoy. Um, when we went from the Harrier to the Harrier went out of service, probably. Sorry, pardon me. That wasn't a great sentence. When when we went from the the B model to the C model of the F-35, it was rapidly became apparent, obviously, that we would need people on exchanges with people who knew how to operate those aeroplanes. Uh, I was at, actually, I was out of area with the French at the time. I was on the Charles de Gaulle and oh, um, uh, off the bottom of the boulevard supporting Afghanistan. I was doing a four month, uh, including Christmas away with the French. And myself and uh, actually the fellow who's now the French Defence attaché in, in in the UK. He was the he was the commander of the air group at the time. We we came up with a plan to essentially find French Navy jobs for our guys because we went out of service while I was with them. When at the same time the guys in the UK were planning to keep the fires going by sending both a stream of junior guys out to the US Navy to learn how to cat and trap, but mm. also a, a stream of um, seniors. And there was there were six slots for each. And the first senior slot had gone to a Royal Marine who was already out in the, the US. And, and really, it was a case of the a pointer flown, phoned round, said, are you in or are you out? I said, yeah, I'm, I'm in. So that they do their thing. The powers that be sit in a room with your folder. And at the end of the day, it's either white smoke or black smoke. And I, I got the call saying, you're, um, you've, you've got the second slot, as it were. So, so I was due to then... Uh, go out to the US, had the minor issue of when I got that phone call, I was actually packing to go out to LME. I was going to Libya for, oh, okay. for that uh, that one. Uh, but essentially what that meant was that um, left Fiona at home with the, with sort of <laughs> the last parting sentence of, uh, rent the house out, pack the kit, um, we're going to the US, I'll be back in the summer. Um, and, 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 and that's how it happened. So what's the actual E-model design for? Is it like air-to-air -air strictly or? No, no. it's. Uh, it the people will disagree with this, but it is the world's best self escort strike fighter. Full stop. Oh, uh, <laughs> full stop. It's superb. It can yes, uh, everyone. You can have a pop at the the Super Hornet because of issues they had while they were developing. It meant that it's not as fast as other platforms, uh, mainly because of the position of some of the pylons. I think, but. The ability to carry the weapon load that it can and the variety of weapons that it can, including no end of anti-surface weapons, yeah. no end of anti-shipping, uh, you know, it's got an anti-shipping capability. Um, when I was out with the US Navy, we, we went to Red Flag and we'd just got approval to fly air-to-air -air in a 1002 plus fit, so 10 AMRAMs, two Whoa. Sidewinder and a cannon. Wow. And so, you know, usually you sit in these debriefs and... and Air-to-air -air is quite fraught, and the reason that you have instrumented ranges and targeting pods and people very good at drawing fights on boards is because you forget stuff, um, <laughs> and um, and it's all a bit too much for the human mind to get. But taking the Super Hornet to Red Flag, A, you had so much situational awareness that it was 
actually quite straightforward. Um, to be offensive counter air on, on red flag in the Super Hornet was actually just any other day at the office. You, you had, we had a APG 79, AESA, which yeah. could show you the entire air picture. And you had 10 AMRAMs to shoot. So you could send the first two just as a slight signal of intent, really. Just and, and <laughs> you'd, really uh, occasionally you get you'd hear one of the younger guys say something like, "Oh, should I?" You know, dithering. Is it just fire? Just just to get one off. <laughs> but um, actually, the, the trick with the, with the Lot Thirty Three Super Hornet, we had the, the Acer, we had a, a jammer, we had a decoy, we had um, helmet mounted sight, we had yeah. ten AMRAMs, we had AIM Nine X. It was just an amazing platform and. But the, the real joy of it was how they put it together. The guys at Boeing need to be given a beer by someone because, uh, so for example, when you looked at your radar screen, um, everything worked. So you would look at the radar, it would tell you what you were facing. The jet had a couple of ways of working out okay. what, what, the, what the opposition were, yeah. uh, what their IFF codes were, all those other things. And they were all perfectly correlated every single time. It wasn't like an, an, a, a, an idea that there might be a Link 16 track. And the, the, the Link 16 fit was fabulous, by the way. Um, a Link 16 track, a radar track, an IFF hit, and you were busy trying to work out what was going on. They were perfect. Um, and the fact that there was the Link 16, actually, I found the hardest thing about Red Flag, and this sounds stupid, is remembering that the F-15s couldn't see what we could. So we, you, you actually, the skill was not listening to the AWACS anymore or the ground controller. It was making sure that you had enough targets yeah. in the enemy groups to make sure that people could see what you could see. So for example, on our last push at Red Flag when I was with the VFA-25, I think Red Air put something like 24 jets up against us and they were in a big wall presentation of um, caps at various altitudes. But you have a massive tactical display between your uh, knees, good God's eye view radar screen here and an azimuth and elevation screen here. You go, well, this is a doddle. They're, they're just, they're, they've stacked six high, six low. If I can just quickly put contacts in all of them, we've got it suitcased. Uh, it, wow. it, it, was, it was absolutely fabulous. I obviously take the fact that all aircraft are compromises mm. and people will have a different opinion as to how um, how aeroplanes fare against each other or, or with each other but but to be honest with that with that cockpit and though all the weapon loadouts you can take uh, I, I couldn't actually, when I was on exchange, think of any better platform to go to war in. I know F-35 wasn't quite on the scenes yet, yeah. uh, Raptor was, but um, uh, and, and I guess the USAF at the time were trying to reorientate the Raptor more to an air-to-surface role as well, uh, to make more, more use of it. And then you've got the F-15E, which has a, a similar yeah. sort of swing capability. But other, other than those, I don't think anyone else really gets into the argument. So it certainly didn't in, in 2011, 2013. Again, we'll see in the comments. Yeah, you might too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But uh, could you tell us what it was like uh, from your ground train to your flying train and how it differed and what were the similarities to the Royal Navy? Well, we started off, um, the first thing you do is go and do all the medicals, which are all the same. Um, uh, other than the, the hearing, you can't cheat in the US Navy hearing test, which you can in the Royal Air Force, Royal Navy one. Uh, that, yeah. Um, <laughs> if, if, actually, I was uh, busy just doing what I've always done in the, in the hearing booth at Pensacola and the there was this, the, the voice of God came and go, uh, you're pushing the button when you shouldn't be, you're cheating, we're going to stop the test. I was like, 
Oh, thought it was the same. Uh, but you, you, then, but the, the, you do the sea survival type stuff, parachute type stuff, swim fizz, all that is yeah. the same. Um, and the, the only thing that I would, I would say is significantly different, or was at the time, is that the US Navy did a far better job of preparing you in the simulator to get in the aeroplane for the first time. Okay. So, so the, when I went through the Sea Harrier, um, I can't remember how many simulator rides you got, but it wasn't that many. And uh, so you got to the aeroplane with a sort of sense of trepidation, mm-hmm. whereas you actually went through in the US Navy a significant amount of sims to get to your first check and then you were allowed to go in the aeroplane. And actually, I found my first flight with an actual instructor a little bit annoying because he was showing me the, and I'll show you this later, but uh, the, the checklist is, what, two inches thick? The how to do this quickly, boys in confidence checklist is a handwritten bit of paper on one, one side. <laughs> yeah. so, so you've gone through whatever it was, 20 plus sim yeah. rides, learning how to do everything. And then there's this voice in the back going, oh, while you're doing that, you could be doing that. Yeah. Don't do that. Don't do this first. Do this. <laughs> Come on. Well, well, why are we still in the shocks? We've been started for six minutes type thing. And uh, um, so, so that, that was different um, and far more professional, I, I hate to say, in the, in the US Navy. And the other thing that whilst we're on the differences, um, the US Navy taught uh, basic fighter manoeuvres, DOCT, fabulously. They, I know there's that Top Gun legacy mm. there, but I think there was a, a, a little bit, stroke a lot, in the Royal Air Force, Royal Navy throughout my flying training of I can do it, why can't you? Um, I fly by feel, but I can't explain how I do it. Whereas the US Navy um, had actually broken down the science of uh, basic fighter manoeuvres very well. So you had your tactical bold face that if you see this, you are to do that. Don't ask a question, just just, just do it. it. These, these are the rules you're going to live by. These are the pictures you're looking for. This is what you're going to do, and this is how you're going to piece together um, a fight in a series of manoeuvres. And I, I thought that was fabulous. I, I really did. So, like, did you bring any of that information back to the Royal Navy or, like, kind of try and get it in there somewhere? Uh, no, I, I wasn't able to. Ins- I, I remember talking to the Typhoon Desk Officer at uh, Air Command because I came back from my exchange to be the F-35 Capability uh, Manager. And uh, I thought that uh, that was a good thing and I, and I mentioned it to them. But, but I obviously came back to a force that was no longer there. So it was, um, it was quite hard to, yeah. to, to, to inject that uh, sort of learning into. So, Paul, what was it like having reheat for the first time? <laughs> Reheats. Reheat's fabulous. Re- reheat um, just feels a bit like that you don't need to obey the laws of physics for a little while. It's, it's that sort of a feeling. Um, and reheat, the nose authority that the aeroplane could give you as well with the Super Hornet was just a, for, for a Harrier driver, was, was, was staggering. Absolutely mm-hmm. staggering. And what was it like working on a US carrier? Um, there were significant differences and I think that it, it's fair to say that the, the US Navy is the big dog in carrier aviation, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and there were certain things that really stuck out as just really business-like. So for example, and I was telling you about the brief back to seniors and the fact we always used to carry this, this form that was a form made and it had your weight on it and how much yeah. you could hover with and all that other stuff. And uh, that didn't seem to exist in the US Navy. You would take your weight chip to the guy who was going to fire you off the front and off you went. You know, you'd go and find your aeroplane. You knew roughly where it was. And so, so it was it was pragmatic. It was a very pragmatic way of doing things. I think that because of how 
they are configured, the US Navy sticks very rigidly to a deck cycle that we yeah. wouldn't necessarily have to. But, but I, I think that you have to do that with a bigger ship. Mm -hmm. um, and so I found that some of the procedures to get back on board quite complex um, and quite rigid compared to what I was used to. But, but by and large, they're, they're very similar. Mm -hmm. And then there comes a bit where, where it's absolutely similar. You know, as a naval aviator, you're used to always having your ejection seat live, mm -hmm. always having your mask on, always having your visors down, all those other things yeah. that are uh, you, you have to, unless you're under a mast, of course, or a radar antenna or something, because yeah. having a seat live then would be a little bit dreary. But um, th th those sorts of things were absolutely common. And obviously you kind of mentioned it before, but like, let's talk about DACT and the Hornet. What was it like to go up against? Did you go up against your, even your Brit counterparts? Uh, no, who'd, so who would I actually have BFM'd against? Uh, F-16s, for example, uh, that, and uh, F-5s down at uh, Key West. That's oh, yeah. a dreadful detachment, you can imagine. <laughs> being, being down at, uh, morning go at Key West, followed by straight straight Awful. into Key West. It is, it is dreadful, absolutely. So um, the, the Super Hornet best fought in a certain way. The, 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 for example, the, the wing with all its lift augmentation that it would give you would camber quite quickly. So you needed to be quite brutal to uncamber it. So right. you'd spend a lot of time sort of smashing the stick forward mm -hmm. uh, in a in a way that would probably lead to some sort of disaster in a Harrier just to get the, yeah. the, um, the, the jet back in a configuration that was useful to you. Mm -hmm. And how did your US counterparts see you as a Brit? Did you integrate well there? They, they were brilliant, actually. They probably gave me far more respect than I deserved. Uh, and I was... I went to the front line, so I didn't go to an instructional tour like most exchange pilots do. I was welcomed as a department head, essentially. So I joined the department head trail through through the squadron, and my skipper and XO, just two super, super people, but they um, essentially allowed me to grow into the weapons training officer role because they knew I had a fair amount to offer, particularly in the air-to-surface um, type role. But, uh, but yeah, just, just fully integrated. They were brilliant with the family. Um, I think when I went to the front line, I got something like three MVG trips and then we went to Red Flag. So it was a, it was a pretty aggressive um, workup. But uh, I genuinely can't speak highly enough of, of how we were welcomed in Le Mans. So Paul, can you share any memorable stories from your time flying the Super Hornet? Oh, Super Hornet, <laughs> I think the... I, th I think the most uh, memorable, other than um, being first out at, at Red Flag, being in the first mission there, which was which is good that because I, I, well, it, it was good, and I think that um, we were operating in a really effective team with some Raptors as well. But I think that the USAF guys have probably chalked us up as F eighteen Charlie uh, oh, models, yeah. so so they weren't necessarily ready for our our sensor performance. That was really quite uh, quite useful and. We put a good team out that day, and with, like I said earlier, the the ten Amram fit was just fabulous. Just get across the line and start shooting. Crazy. That was uh, that was really really good. You know, we had Swedish guys with us, uh, Emiratis. It was it, that that was a really good mission. Mm -hmm. I'd say as far as the um, the one that sticks out, a couple of that stick out for me from the time on the deck would be the the time that the, the ship fogged out at the same time as we lost the three and four wires so that was of course <laughs> yeah and, and so you're now in this oh golly i've got to find a ship yes yeah. it's in the fog it's at night um and we've only we're down to two wires so they're going to be plonking me on the two wire and you know the, the one wire is still sort of verboten but never mind we'll make it stick and i, I just remember approaching the, the deck um and 
at hearing all the people going ashore, unable to, to, to trap, not all the people, there weren't that many, but I thought, oh, golly, <laughs> if I... If I sense that I'm over steel, I'm going to make this one stick, which probably meant the, uh, the, the landing wasn't that, that great. And then I remember, it just, just because it brought a smile to my face, um, we did what was called a, an airborne respot. So believe it or not, it was just a case of at night, get everyone airborne for a short, something like a 45 minute cycle, right. but it just allows them to get the deck back in the order for the morning. Ah, so rather okay. than having jets on tractors yeah. all night, it's just, just launch everyone. And, um, and I didn't realize, but one of my best friends on the, on the unit, uh, a, a chap called Golden, uh, he, he challenged me to a get to height competition. And, okay. and, and, I, and I, I thought that I was doing all right. I ended up in the high thirties or something thinking I really ought to get to Marshall right now. <laughs> and, and Golden sort of called that he was up at 48,000 or something, something absolute, wow. a, a lunacy like that. And I can just remember thinking, oh God, <laughs> you've won, hands down. Yeah. Uh, yeah and then, then back to the boat so they can put us all back in the same place. Mm-hmm. So how would you ta- uh, sum up your time on the Super Hornet and your time in the US? Uh, a treat. It just, just, just a, a rare treat. The jet was fabulous. The squadron was absolutely brilliant. Squadron leadership, um, all the troops really, genuinely from beginning to end, there, there was nothing uh, bad about any time with the US Navy. And do you still keep in contact with the people you flew with and work with? Yeah, not, not all of them, uh, a couple. So uh, I, I now work for an American company. So there was a time when I was traveling a fair bit across the Atlantic and you, you can send out an email saying, hey, any friendlies in the Washington area? the coming week or whatever but so uh, that that fellow that um uh, i just spoke to you about yes yes in, yeah. in, in, he's just left the u.s navy having had a squadron command in japan so uh he, he's now back in the washington area so i look forward to hooking up with him so paul you've also got a new book out tell us about this uh i'm very proud of this book uh this book actually started when you remember i told you i was away on the Charles de gaulle um I decided, because I had a bit of time on my hand, to start tapping up some of the better stories from my time in the Sea Harrier and the Harrier Force, and I did so. Uh, That gathered a bit of impetus when the jet went out of service, halfway through my out of area with the French, and then, to be honest, Mike, I forgot about it. I um, left them. The, The book was in various chapters on hard drives in old email accounts. Luckily, I emailed some of them back to myself, uh, and purely by chance, essentially, some someone, one person I used to work with, uh, approached me one day to say, I can't help but you you told me you wrote a book. I, I, I think that I know someone who could help you kick it into shape. Right. And, th- and I needed a bit of time to do that, obviously. That was the pandemic. And so we went from a pretty rough and ready, um, probably a little bit brusque because of uh, it was written in the uh, I've just gone out of service once, I've just gone out of service twice <laughs> context. So there were some opinions that needed to be um, refreshed, shall we say, with, right. with, with the passage of time. And also it went from being, say, 12, 20 standalone stories, all of which require you to explain the subject matter yeah. for every time. You don't need to do that if you're, you're writing a, a book. And so it went from being standalone Dits that I couldn't find all of them, sadly. I think I had um, as many as 20 written down. I, I, I managed to find, let's call it 14, mm-hmm. um, and then kicked it into shape uh, throughout the pandemic and um, out at the end of April. So uh, ge- genuinely very proud of it. Absolutely, and you should be. Uh, so where can we find it online? Uh, it, it's actually marketed or, or it's published, pardon me, by Penguin. Uh, so any anything 
for example, penguin or water stones, etc., will, will have it. I think if you Google Paul Tremelling or, or Harrier, how to be a fighter pilot, it, it comes up. You'll get a, a whole page of hits. You're also on Twitter. Maybe people can find you there. Do you know your handle? Uh, it's it's very boring. It's Paul underscore Tremelling. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm not hiding. <laughs> <laughs> so Paul, do you have any hobbies? Uh, mainly mainly fishing, and uh, and playing rugby. There you go. Ke keeps me busy. <laughs> Favourite aircraft you have flown? I know it's a difficult one and everyone... It, 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 it is a difficult one because uh, the Sea Harrow was my first love, as it were. The GR took me to war and the Super Hornet was easily the most capable of the three. So I, th I think we're going to have to go with the, uh, the Sea Harrier. The Sea Harrier, right. Any aircraft you would love to fly, either past or present? Yes, the um, F4 Corsair. Okay, interesting. Never heard that one before. It's normally the Blackbird or something like that. <laughs> now, I think that the Corsair, because A, that gold wing looks superb, and B, I quite like the story. This might be myth, might be legend, might be true, that the US fellows were puzzling about how to get it onto a deck, and it was the fleet air arm that, yeah. that did it. And actually, when you look at the uh, the performance stats, though, for a propeller-driven aeroplane, it, it? Is, it is fabulous. Absolutely, yes. And to wrap up, obviously everyone's going to be able to see the helmet in this shot, but can you tell us about that and where it came from? Yeah, so uh, this, this is my um, helmet from uh, my exchange tour with VFA-25. Uh, VFA-25, the fist of the fleet, uh, this is their patch, uh, which has the, the fist with, with the lightning. And uh, VFA, the, the, the fighter attack unit, it's, it's got a heritage through other units as well, and the stars will, will um, signify essentially combat honours. So um, I walked into the parachute loft one day and the, uh, the, the guys had said, Sir, look what we've done for you. Do you mind? I was like, well, that, that's, that's one of the coolest things I've ever seen. So hence my union flag fist was a, was a gift from the, the boys, really. It was, uh, it was superb. And how did you walk away with that? You just like, oh, I'm going to take me out and order the gift to you. Uh, well, actually, I said I'm going to walk away with my helmet, <laughs> right. and, and the guys, and you won't believe this, the US being a superpower, but they actually asked, could we keep the oxygen mask because we don't have enough at the no moment. Way. So the reason it doesn't have an oxygen mask is I was too nice and I, I, I should have said no I'm keeping it. What a gentleman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well Paul thank you very much for coming on the show it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you.